Welcome to Espresso Talks, your source for interviews with a wide range of unique people from diverse backgrounds around the world. I'm your host, Anthony T. Eaton. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. I saw that you went to Concordia College, one of the places that you went. My education is a story among itself. Two of my best mates still live in uh, Minnesota. They work for the National Guard out in Minnesota. We've done some great uh, trainings with Together Travel the World. We spent a summer in Croatia together. I'm always threatening to get back there and, and be with yeah. them. But I'm like, well, it's coming fall and winter, and I don't want to be in Minnesota for the winter. So that's why I don't <laughs> live there anymore. Definitely like at the, the vanguard of adult learning when that started happening. So, you know, I graduated from high school in 1995. And did some volunteer service and some military service that really left me at a young age, you know, like 21 and 22, I was already having kids and I was living and working in DC and the whole online education uh, was just starting to bud. And, you know, I had done night classes and weekend courses and, and tried to follow as traditional route as possible. And so then really kind of thank the gods that technology started to enable distance learning. And Concordia was great. I had done the majority of my undergrad through the University of Maryland system. And then I was working for a nonprofit foundation for private colleges and universities. There's a fundraising association for private colleges. And they said, well, we'll pay to complete your degree if you go to a private college. And Concordia had a blended system where you could do some courses distance and then go for a couple months and then do some courses distance and go to a couple months. So I actually never lived permanently in Minnesota and shared a flat with friends that were in similar circumstances, but it was cool. And then after graduation, it was like, oh, now that you can, there's like completely online models. In the beginning, it was, there was a lot of distrust surrounding, you know, how do you measure things like pedagogy and the adult learners retention on an online platform. And Well, that's awesome. You were able to accomplish that. The technology is amazing. What drew you into serving in the military, in the National Guard? What's the background story on that? Well, it's difficult or it's nuanced to describe yourself in today's culture when you were represented as a young person in things that were previously like espoused as like the epitome of, of good in our, in our culture. So, you know, I grew up very much like the all-American mom and apple pie kind of kid, captain of the swim team, student body president, and was always motivated in my life by a strong sense of duty, you know, volunteering in the community, being active in the congregation, just those types of things. So when it came time to graduate from high school, the army was kind of an obvious choice. In retrospect, I know I didn't get all the best recommendations or advice from parents and peers or even the recruiter, but I grew up in a military family. My grandfather was a World War II veteran. My uncle served in Vietnam, and they were kind of my heroes growing up. You know, I also grew up consuming 1980s cinema and media where, you know, watching Magnum P.I. and realizing he was a veteran and Rambo and stuff. And <laughs> even though later on in my life, I would point to how those types of things created a stigma that we're still facing in the veteran space today. It was just kind of a, a logical step growing as, uh, out, up out West. And it just I, I had those characteristics that the military wanted. It was a good motivation and, and something to do, to, you know, to get out of the city I grew up in and from a very blue collar family with not a lot of options and how am I going to pay for school and, and, you know, 9-11 hadn't happened yet and we were still just 
barely getting into like you know the bosnia stuff of the late 90s the balkans right. that was like graduate level geopolitics that my you know senior in high school mind couldn't really wrap itself around but as i learned about genocide and tribalism and the impacts of cultural differences in politics then i started to say like well i want to study that so i served in the army just as an enlisted soldier and was a reservist for a few years trying to cut my teeth in the corporate world as well. And then I decided, you know, I really like my army job to be my only job. And so I went to officer candidate school in 2005 and then really found a niche in strategic planning and in operations. I'm an active duty guardsman. So right. I work full time, but it's one of the best kept secrets. I only travel when I want to. Um, I did go to Iraq on one tour, which was more of an obligatory thing. I didn't say, oh, please send me. But it's given me the opportunity to travel the world. The National Guard does things called state partnership programs, where each state is married up with a developing nation. But some are NATO partners. Um, I got to spend a few years going back and forth from Cambodia to help develop their national defense, which was kind of like a Chinese deterrent. And I think now Cambodia is a vessel state for China, unfortunately, and there hasn't yeah. been a lot that we're doing there. Croatia and Germany, and just getting an opportunity to go work with NATO partners and do that kind of planning and stuff. Even currently, you know, Poland just purchased a whole bunch of Abrams tanks from foreign military sales of the of the government, and they've reached out. And we're brokering that deal on how do we help them develop and train. And strategically, what happens is they're an enabler to Russian deterrence in Eastern Europe, but they're also a NATO partner. So, you know, the details of that are still flushing out, but it's stuff that I wouldn't have expected in, you know, my 17-year-old self to say like, oh, one day you're going to do those type of things. That's really cool, that exposure that you get to all of those things that you mentioned, right? The cultural exposure, for sure, that most people never get the opportunity to experience, uh, to see how things are in other countries. And I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people in the military at different levels. And it's interesting because it's changed what I would have traditionally thought the military was. How has it formed you as a leader in what you do? How has that kind of formed and shaped your leadership style? Well, I think, you know, what the military does, and then and I say the military broadly, but my examples are specifically Army. Right. I think all branches are similar, but the Army more so is that leadership is not a result of your function. So maybe in the corporate world, you're in HR or accounting or sales or operations, and because you're great at your function... You start to rise into managerial positions, and then you are a leader. You're maybe the senior vice president, so you're starting to then influence people to reach the outcomes that you want that they may not be able to get to on their own, but your leadership is born out of function. And then I think that's why there's a whole industry surrounding leader development and organizational development and the psychology of the workplace and hosting interventions to build people's soft skills. But the military espouses leadership above your function. Maybe once I've been given a duty assignment because of my leadership attributes, but I'm expected to be a leader no matter where the Army puts me in to work. So I've been right. a human resources officer with no formal training. They, you can go to school and get the training, but you're a leader, so go run this organization. Operations at different echelons, strategic planning. So really what it taught me is that what we call our ethos, my personal values and characteristic are always held above the job function. And so a lot of military transitioning service members have a difficult time articulating their value proposition to the civilian world because they're like, well, I'm a leader because we all take that for granted. Like, of course, you're a leader. 
and because we placed our leadership above our function, it's our number one, like pin, this is me, I'm a leader. And so then the world's like, hey, that's cool, but we don't care what your rank was. And we don't care like that you're a leader, but what, what did you do? Like, what skills do you have that are transferable into like our company? And I found that to your point, those who have transitioned back into the civilian world oftentimes struggle with how to translate that in articulating, this is what I did in my military role. This is how it would apply. I think a lot of military personnel really struggle with that. I would say as much that there's a whole industry evolving around that, around coaches and human resource professionals that are targeting transitioning service members and how to write that resume, how to present yourself, how to create a brand. Some great guys like Michael Quinn, Matt Quick are loud voices in that space, but there are dozens and dozens of people and there's some great nonprofits that are helping with transition. I think the Department of Defense has got some great programs. They have a thing called the Skill Bridge Program where a service member transitioning out when they're at the 180 day mark, the government actually underwrites their salary to go work in like an internship at a company and everybody agrees that this is gonna lead to a job. Oh, really? Um, it's not open to everybody, but it's gaining a lot of traction. And but the SkillBridge program is is pretty cool for a lot of people who, you know, are big fish in small ponds, meaning they've only worked in military bases and they don't have a network out in the civilian sectors. They don't know what industries they want to get into. And so they can kind of find that mentorship without the pressure of, but also how will I put food on the table tonight? Cause yeah. I need to be paid. So I'm a huge fan of that. I believe that a lot of the hallmarks of leadership that we value in the corporate world, their genesis was found in military service, whether that was through a service academy route, you know, like you were a West Point or an Annapolis graduate, but I think we can also even find the influences of Japan and post-war lean practices were all about Japanese and American influences working together like at Toyota to create this streamline, remove the fat, get the job done type of approach to manufacturing. You know, I think that's one thing that aided our economy post-World War II was just the influence of those lean practices. And It's kind of the reimagining of the uh, Henry Ford approach. The Industrial Revolution obviously is gone, but the same principles can apply in business today that Mm -hmm. applied back then. And again, efficiencies when we're talking about that, whether it be technology or even softer skills. Yeah, you come across companies who they embrace the Kaizen approach, right? The constant improvement through small little changes. And that's something the military does innately. Like when we do anything, we always conduct this after action review and the preponderance of time is focused on what didn't happen that should have happened or what were the obstacles to in the process and how do we remove that and what changes do we need to make? And we're kind of talking veteran transition and leadership in the army. I think that because they are both tangible and existing, it's the communication and the human interaction between veterans and you know hiring managers about really understanding what you did and how it would be applicable. I think the Army and military are producing generation after generation of great leaders that are sometimes underemployed or sold short because they weren't effectively communicating their value, their personal brand and value proposition to what companies were looking for. I think a lot of organizations struggle as well to understand some of the challenges that military, former military face as they make that transition back into Mm -hmm. corporate America. 
the military is very structured in many ways. And in corporate America, it tends to be sometimes not as structured and more fluid. So that ability to embrace that when you're kind of used to this very clear hierarchy of how orders come down. And there's probably to a great degree less autonomy in the military, I would think, than there is in corporate America. Yeah, there's a couple of a couple of things unpacked there. I think there is this idea in the military of mission command, where a senior says to a group, "This is the end state. These are the goals." So it's kind of a design method of thinking. Like, here's our current conditions. Here's the conditions that we want. Now you go and create those lines of effort to achieve those conditions. All branches of service also, though, have irregular warfare, special operations people that are educated to think against the stream and to come up with innovative ideas. Another lens we could view this veteran transition in is through the DEI lens. You know, post-World War II veterans made up 12% of the population, and today veterans are less than 1%. So as we're looking to promote diversity in the workplace, we have a underemployed pocket demographic of skilled workers and leaders that have negative biases and prejudice because of their military service. Like, well, I would love to bring you in, but you know, you were in the army, you are that militant, can't think outside the box, must be told everything to do. There's that bias there. You know, selfishly, I would like to see veteran status grow in visibility in that DEI world and that we share that equity in hiring for people who have, you know, served their nation and create deliberate seats at the table for those folks also. I'm all about equal pay and opening jobs to all people. And the whole LGBTQ plus community of, you know, just service is service. And I think that it's sometimes the military is kind of a control group. We test social issues inside the military. I was celebrating the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell the other day. And I wrote a little article on LinkedIn to just say, like, I remember when that happened, I was a company commander in Iraq. And of all the things I was dealing with there, that was super important. And we had to have some deliberate discussions about that. And there was a lot of biases, people's thinking that needed to shift around that. So those things were important. Um, But in the DEI lens, some companies are creating deliberate cohorts, pipelines to employment for veterans. And I think that, you know, if it's less than 1% of the population, then a seat at the table should be for the veteran as well as. I absolutely agree. I think that we should not see unemployment of our veteran people. I mean, I understand that it's more complex than that, but I think for those who have the ability and the desire to have a job, there's no reason why somebody who's transitioning out of the military should be struggling with finding a position. To your point, there are biases within organizations, and I think a lack of understanding. The truth is, is that it's a very small group of service members who struggle with like post-traumatic stress to the point like when we label that, but all of like our behavioral sciences and neurological studies focus on that post-traumatic stress. But in contrast, transition stress for most veterans is assessed to be like the biggest stress they've ever had in their lives. Maybe the key is to try to get corporate leaders to put themselves in the mindset of what if we took you out of your corporate environment and we threw you into the military? I mean, imagine what that would be like. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be the same kind of stressors that military personnel experience. It was interesting to hear you talk about the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, because another friend of mine, he also wrote an article about his experience with that whole change. And the question has come up, how do you feel about this? What are your thoughts? Do you think the military moves slowly? 
your point is great that it is often this environment that is so unique from a cultural change standpoint. I don't know if it's necessarily slow to adopt. The military is a big machine. Mm -hmm. So those changes, I can imagine, have their own challenges. I think that service members and veterans are just a cross-section of America. Like, we don't have a warrior caste system where we're birthing Spartans and they go <laughs> live on an island and then they serve in the military, right? We all, all grew up in either rural America or inner cities or suburbia. And so our characteristics, our ethics are all products of those situations that we grew up in, the nature versus nurture. So the way we were nurtured kind of shapes us and then we're put into this melting pot. But there are some institutionalized schools of thought that I would say in the past 10 years and then even in this past year are really breaking apart due to great disruptors, positive disruptors, right? You know, I grew up with one theme in the military that said, you know, there's only one color in the army and it's green. Well, I was really code for white. I never heard any of my black friends say there's only one color in the army. When DAT was repealed, that was actually the contrast I made for the soldiers that I had that were struggling in adopting that was, you know, 70 years ago, fellas, our grandfathers were in a room that said, blacks are going to serve in our unit and we need to make space for that. And we need to accept that. And that's the way, you know, your cultural norms are dictated to you. You're now accepting that. Now, personally, they may have a problem with it, but if they wanted to maintain their service, then they needed to adjust. So I had the same kind of message to them now is that, you know, my friends that are gay, that are serving in the military, that have been serving in the military, this is a beautiful thing because they can be their authentic selves and we can celebrate their service. And for so many that were discharged because of, you know, what was a terrible policy, I don't know that reparation is the right word to use, but I am happy to see that our politicians are looking at that and trying to repair the damage that those discharges did to those people's lives. In other words, you know, we've also recently had to root out extremism. You know, January 6th was a big eye-opener for a lot of people. But, you know, there's varying degrees of affluence in the military, and there's varying degrees of intellectualism in the military. And I think that some of that is geographically based. But we don't define community by geography anymore. We define it by affinity. So if you're speaking the values that resonate with me, I'm going to be part of your community, regardless of what post I'm assigned to where I'm located in America. I could be in the deep South, but be part of a community that's somewhere completely different or, or isn't located anywhere because it's all virtual. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. As I was reading through your LinkedIn profile, your about section, I was struck by where you say you've established yourself as a leading voice in disrupting social narratives, designing innovative solutions for veterans. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, it really stood out to me. It resonated. Some of the examples of that are far too often my sisters in arms who maybe have a veteran license plate or the sticker of a unit that they served in on their car are told too often, tell your husband, thank you for his service. It's our generation's obligation to champion you know, gender equality. All roles in the military are open to all genders. And even when we're just dealing with both traditional genders and opening that up and saying like, it's, it's not even a gender question anymore, all are welcome. But we have these social stereotypes that we project onto people. I was mentioning like Magnum P.I. and Rambo, it was 1980s cinema that really presented veterans as deranged people broken from war. So that's what you're going to get. And it's taken a long time to, for society to say, oh, actually, all these people coming back from the global war on terror, you know, there are some broken folks, absolutely. 
the more that we can popularize the success of people in their stories, the more we start to move the needle on how people view military service, who are those people and veterans. Because you can put a group of veterans in a room and they still have all the generational biases that exist in regular society. You know, if I'm a Gen Xer and I've got a boomer in the room or I've, or, you know, a Vietnam veteran, that's a unique thing in itself because, you know, most Vietnam veterans who are kind of the leaders of these veteran service organizations now because of their age and retirement and having the free time and wanting to give back. But a lot of them were conscripted. You know, that was the last generation to be drafted for war. And right. they define volunteerism differently. Now we're an all-volunteer force. Like nobody is compelled to serve today. In the veteran space, some things that are different is, you know, my generation doesn't really care about a card-carrying membership at a club that comes every Friday and tells war stories. Like I can connect with all the people I've served with through social media. When I get together, I want it to be, you know, less formal, fundamentally social. I want to learn something new, you know, those types of things. Disrupting that in uniform and out of uniform. And of course, you know, I should preface all like my opinions are my own. I don't represent the military, yeah. but I feel privileged enough to be one of the initial leaders to integrate women into combat arms in the military. You know, I'm a cavalry officer. I'm an armor officer by trade. Um, that means, you know, Abrams tanks and Bradley's and ground maneuver warfare. There's a lot of um, heritage that has had to shift and be respected in a different way. And when I say institutional biases, you know, things that we have always maybe promoted hypermasculinity that just isn't acceptable anymore. Patton said, when I want my men to remember something, I give it to them double dirty. And he said, a, a army without profanity couldn't fight its way out of a piss-soaked paper bag. But you can't use those words in today's generation society and cultural norms have changed. The military, you would expect, would change with that. It's hard to turn a ship. You know, I, I was cheering when don't ask, don't tell went away. I think, yes, I agree for those who maybe face dishonorable discharges because they were LGBTQ, that should be removed. I don't know what other reparations are possible for individuals. I think as society changes and we are more open to recognizing where we went wrong, we can make things right. It may mm -hmm. not always be the, the easiest. You mentioned something before. If I looked back at 17-year-old me, what would you say if you could talk to 17-year-old you about who you will become? Mm. Well, I mentioned that I don't think I got all the best advice at that age, I would have told myself, like, there are only certain things that you can do that you need to be young to do. So those aspirations that you have built up for yourself, you need to jump on quickly because the train will leave the station and you're not going to be able to do those things. I was the first generation of my family. My cousin and I were the first to ever go to college. And so I don't know that I was a very avid reader in my young life, my high school, my K through 12 life, but I found the love of learning and the love of reading later in life. And education seemed to be closed to me. So I think what I would have told myself is like, be patient. You can make a way and that all doors are not closed. I mean, I'm a fan of therapy. And I think that when my inner child gets hurt is when I feel I'm not enough. And I think one thing that's unique about the army is, or the military is, you know, we wear stuff on our chest. We wear rank on our chest. Any room I go into professionally, I'm assessed immediately like, oh, you're this professionally. So therefore I can determine X about you. There is some safety in that, frankly. 
there's some safety in the institution. I think that some of the things would really just be like lessons learned, you know, when, like my wartime experience. I was an infantry company commander in Iraq. And if people say, what did you learn from that? Some of the things that I learned have helped me professionally in that I learned that sometimes somebody else's best effort is good enough, which defeated my perfectionism, which really was born from being that all-American kid and captain of the swim team, and that I could make better decisions faster because when lives are on the line, the ancillary stuff that floats in the ether just wasn't important. But that didn't mean that there were a lot of you know sleepless nights as a young person saying, like, I've got to do this, it's got to be right, and I need that A or whatever. It was great to motivate me to be com I'm competitive by nature, and but how do you have healthy competition void yeah. of perfectionism? Totally agree with that. I think everybody should strive always to do the best that they can. I had this discussion years and years ago. You know, the question was, do you give credit for effort? We had this kind of heated debate, and she served in the military. She was like, no, if there's not success at the end, it doesn't matter. And I, I disagree because if you're going to use that as the measuring stick, then people won't try because the fear of failure will paralyze them. We're never always going to be good at everything that we do. Right. We're not always going to make the right decision. We make decisions with the information we have at the moment. My personal thought is, yes, effort does count. Yeah, a theme in the military is that the best units have rebranded themselves as learning organizations. And when you do that, there's some freedom for let's make the attempt because there might be an action due to fear of failure. But if you're a learning organization, that means we've given ourselves permission to attempt these things. And if we miss the mark, guess what? We'll recock and start and try again. And maybe it's going to be an, it's an iterative learning approach to results. And that's freeing for a lot of military organizations. And I, I see that in the corporate world too. To varying degrees. Yeah. Depends on the, the organization. And it gets more difficult when it's tied to a bottom line. Like, oh, you bombed that presentation. Well, you learned a lot. That's great. You're going to be better next time. But if we lost that client or that sale or that acquisition because you bombed it. I know we're coming up on time. It's been great having this conversation with you. And Yeah, I'm really uh, glad we could connect. Real quick, what do you see in your future? Wow, that's a big question. Well, you know, the sun is setting on my military service. So I'm just now embarking on the strangeness and fears of transition. Um, fear is a, is a difficult word to use. I'm not scared about it, but you know, the, the world is your oyster. Um, but all these things we've been talking about uh, ring true for me and, and, and my circumstances. So what's next for me is making friends, building the network, I have a great life and I'm really thankful for all, all the, the good things that have gone on with me. So I think, you know, identifying the next culture that I want to be a part of, the next organization that has those values that, you know, speak to me and a place where I can use this lived experience as an army officer to make an impact and a buck. Well, I really appreciate your taking an hour out of your day on a well, Friday. I hope I haven't bored you and you feel wasted. Not at all. Not at all. Okay. Well, I enjoyed it. Great.